Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, choir and orchestra. And thank you for a great congregational song singing this morning. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. We're going to be looking at a variety of scriptures beginning in verse 26. Uh, in just a moment, Dr. McWhite is taking a much-needed vacation, and so it's my privilege uh, to stand in this pulpit today and to preach, and I appreciate the honor that I've been given by being asked to do so. One of the little-known facts about me is the fact that I have a syndrome called ADDD. It's Attention Deficit Driving Disorder. When I'm in a car, uh, this syndrome causes me to be as interested as things on, in things on the side of the road as I am about things in the middle of the road. Now, as you can imagine, that has caused some great consternation in Lynn's life when she joins me. Now, my philosophy has always been, if Lynn's watching the road, why should I miss what's on the side of the road? And she's been good over the years to give me those warnings, the imaginary break in her side, the arm to the left that's sound or whatever. Well, a number of years ago, she came to me and she said, Jerry, I just want you to know I've made a major decision. I've given you a warning the last time that you are about to cause an accident. And if I die as a result of your driving, you're going to have to live with the guilt. Well, I gave that a lot of thought, and I went back to her. It just really grieved me, and I said, Lynn, I want to make you a promise. If you die as a result of my driving, I'll make you the best roadside memorial anybody's ever seen. <laughs> to say the least, that did not console her one bit. Memorials. Those visual reminders and tributes dedicated to the memories of an individual, an event, or something in our lives that we determine are worth remembering. Memorials are designed to cause us to remember, to cause us to reflect, to cause us to experience gratitude, and in some cases to change the way we live as a result of the sacrifices made by the individuals who have died. During his ministry, Jesus established what I would label as two memorials. The first we've already experienced, and that's the memorial that we could call baptism. That every time, as Jeremy so ably described, every time we see a baptism, it is a visual reminder and symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then there's another memorial that we're going to celebrate at the end of my sermon, and that is the memorial of the Lord's Supper. Now, normally in our celebrations of the Lord's Supper, the sermon that supports it talks about the elements of the Lord's Supper, the, the setting of being the, in the upper room in the Passover meal and how Jesus converted that Passover meal experience into a brand new experience for believers that we call the Lord's Supper. Some call Eucharist, some call um, communion. 
But what we find in the Lord's Supper are the visual reminders of the death, the tragic, horrible death that Jesus experienced. But his body being ripped to shred by the cats of nine tails, his body being pierced in his hands and his feet with the nails. And we think of that visual reminder with the bread that we eat, and we talk about the, the, the fruit of the vine and the representation it is of the blood that Jesus has shed on our behalf. And we're going to look at those at the end of the, uh, end of the Lord's Supper experience today. But I want to take a different direction. I want to ask and answer the question, what are we going to do after supper today? After this supper, is our life going to be any different as a result of having experienced the Lord's Supper together? Now, what I've done in preparation for this sermon is read the gospel accounts as to what the disciples got into after the Lord's Supper experience that they had just had. And what we're going to find out is a simple truth that we need to understand. An experience of worship with the Lord's Supper is no guarantee that we're going to live a life, a Christ-pleasing life as a result. And I want to issue a warning, and this is where you can begin taking notes in your uh, note handout there. Even after experiencing the Lord's Supper today, we can leave this place of worship and fall flat on our spiritual faces. The disciples are proof of that. And we will look just at three of the things that they got themselves involved in. And these are not the only ones that we need to be wary of. You can fill in your own blank as the sermon goes from what we find out. The first thing I want us to see is, if we're not careful, we can experience spiritual failure because of fear. If you look in verse 31, Jesus said to them, uh, in verse 30, he said, after seeing him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said something that surely shook them up. You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Now, verse 56 will prove that to be true. When Jesus, when soldiers came to arrest Jesus, his disciples scattered to the four winds. And what drove them away was the enemy that we call fear. Now, what's interesting is just an hour or so earlier in the upper room is recorded in John 16, 33. Jesus has said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Not fear, not tribulation, not trembling, but you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. One of the arch enemies of the Christian life is fear. What is it? I'll give you a definition in your listener guide that I created myself. Fear is that emotion of angst and apprehension, of fight or flight, which overcomes us in situations where we feel little or no ability to keep ourselves safe or to control desirable outcomes. If you feel controlled, in a situation, you're not going to fear. 
What is lacking in any experience of fear is a sense of control over the situation. And so what happens, whether it creates emotional paralysis or robs us of our peace, or both, fear is our enemy. Little boy crawled up in the bed between his mom and dad one night and snuggled up against them. And his dad, sensing that he was scared about something, said, Son, you don't have to be afraid. He said, I know, Dad, but I can't keep my mind off my thoughts. Have you ever been in that situation with life? Well, that's where the disciples were that night. Fear can get the best of even the best of us. And what are some of those fears that we see in the disciples' lives? I'll give you three options that I see in the passage here. First of all, it's the fear of death. That's why they scattered to the winds that night. They were afraid, like many of us are, of death or the dying process. And experience teaches us that even with a vivid picture of eternity buried in the symbols of the Lord's Supper, we can experience the Lord's Supper, we can talk about eternal life, and we can walk out that door after our Lord's Supper experience day scared to death about death. But then we see in their their disciples' lives the fear of life, the fear of living. The fear of just going day to day, fears that our jobs and our financial situations and our health and our relationships and our safety and our security bring into our lives. And then there's the fear, strangely as it sounds, of the abundant life. The fear of what it means to live all in with Jesus. Jesus had just told him in verse 32, after I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee. Right then, he promised them an aspect of the abundant life, that they would live not with the memories of a dead hero, but they would live in the presence of an alive Savior. But even that promise of the resurrected life was not enough to take away their fears. You see, fear can paralyze us and keep us from trusting God's presence and his power and his provisions, his promises, his personhood, his protection, and his providence. We can get so wrapped up into our fear that we forget to trust in God. And when we forget to trust in any of those aspects of God, it can take us down the road to fear. Well, how can we neutralize fear? Two I see in Scripture, and I know there are more, but two I would suggest to you this morning, one coming from the verse of Scripture you see printed there, 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but what? Perfect love casts out fear. Who is the only one who has perfect love? It's God. And so what the Bible is telling us, what John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was telling us that day, is when we neutralize fear by accepting an an assurance of God's perfect love, that is when we grasp hold of the truth of what His love 
and his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and his grace are all about. And in the Bible is saying if we grasp that, if we accept that, if we're assured of his perfect love, then that casts out fear in our lives. But if we fail to do it that way, there's another way Scripture tells us to neutralize fear. And number two, neutralize it with courage built upon the foundation of faith in God's promises and protection and provision. That's how we neutralize fear. If we can't overcome fear by doing away with it through acceptance of God's perfect love, then God says, I will give you the strength to have the courage to go forward in spite of your fear. You see, what we need to understand about courage is this. The, the official or an official definition of it is the ability to do something that frightens you. If there's no fear, there's no need for courage. And so what courage does, in spite of fear, it moves forward. Now, what we need to do is to live courageously in light of the truth of Isaiah 41.10, where God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Number two, we need to accept as our own God's challenge to Joshua. In Joshua 1.9, where he said, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What God is saying there is exercise your will because courage is a choice of your will. So exercise your will and choose courage. What are you doing after supper today? Is fear going to control your life? But then there's a second thing the disciples got into, and it leads to this truth. If we're not careful, we can experience spiritual failure because of pride. If you look there in verses 33 and 35, uh, there are two kinds of pride that were present on this night during and after the Lord's Supper. The first one we only find in Luke twenty-two twenty-four. Let me read it to you. It says, There arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. I want you to notice, if you go and look at that passage of Scripture, the disciples got into that debate right after they finished drinking the wine as a tribute to Jesus' blood that he would shed. What a study in human nature. But what we see there is the presence of arrogance among them, a feeling of superiority in comparison to other people. Comedian Jeff Foxworthy some time ago was being interviewed by Pastor Andy Stanley. Near the end of his interview, talking about his commitment to Christ, he said something worthy of hearing. He said, my life is best when I am not the most important thing in it. What wisdom he spoke when he said that. So 
The first pride we see in the disciples is arrogance. But then one that's just as dangerous is what I'm labeling as spiritual pride. The essence of spiritual pride is believing that whereas other people may fail, God, you won't or I won't. That's what the disciples got into starting in verse 31 of chapter 26 when Jesus said, you will all fall away because of me this night. And what did they say in verse 33, led by Peter? But Peter answered and said to him, even though all of you may fall away because of you, all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And then Peter said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter, as usual, spoke first. The others affirmed his words. But what was the trap they were falling into at that moment? It was the trap of declaring there is a given sin that you will never commit. That is a spiritual pride that does that and leads us down a dangerous road. See, it moves us from Christ's sufficiency to self-sufficiency based on self-righteousness. There's another danger in it, and that's the danger of drawing a line in the sand and daring Satan to cross over that line and prove you wrong. I don't know if you've ever heard of a man by the name of Dr. Gordon MacDonald. Dr. Gordon MacDonald wrote a book a number of years ago, entitled Rebuilding Your Broken World. In the beginning of the book, now he was a pastor, a a speaker, a a head of a national Christian organization earlier in his ministry. And so in his book, he talks about the fact that a friend came to him one day, they were talking, and he said, if Satan were to get you, where would he get you? He thought for a minute, and he said, well, I'm not sure what the answer to that question, but I'll tell you where he won't get me. He won't get me through my family because my family is secure and tight with the Lord. Well, I don't know if Satan put a bullseye on his back or not, but a number of uh, months later, news hit the Christian world that Dr. McDonald had had an affair while on a business trip. Fortunately, friends gathered around him and his wife and salvaged their marriage, salvaged his ministry. And that book was written to help people through the process that he went through to rebuild his broken world. Spiritual pride that says there's no way that I would ever do such and such, and you fill in the blank. You better be careful. Satan may come after you to prove you wrong. How can we be sure pride doesn't get us? Well, I know you'd be disappointed if we didn't visit Philippians today. (laughs) Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the humility that we need to make sure that we don't succumb to spiritual pride. What are you doing after supper today? Will pride follow you out the door? But then there's a third thing that I list there in your listener guide, and that's this. If we're not careful, we can experience spiritual failure when we neglect to exercise key spiritual disciplines. Now, I know you're familiar with verses 36 to 45, where Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, took Peter, James, and John into closer area, and told them to all to watch and to pray. And he came back three times and found them asleep. And what I would suggest to you today, what they found into the fact, fell into is the fact that they neglected to do some very important spiritual disciplines. Jesus had spent a good bit of time in John, as recorded in John during the Lord's Supper in the upper room, talking about prayer, talking about a new day of prayer that was coming. But because of the experience of life, Instead of praying and exercising this new discipline that they had just heard about, instead, they slept. Now, what you and I need to understand is life has a way of choking out our ability to successfully fulfill the spiritual disciplines that will help us grow in Christ and live the Christian life successfully. Like Bible study and Bible reading and prayer and witnessing and service and discovering our gifts, developing our spiritual gifts, and using them in ministry. To successfully exercise those disciplines, we must diligently prioritize the business and the busyness of life. And both of those can get in our way of succeeding as Christians. Years ago, during Desert Storm invasion of Kuwait and Iraq, a man, a, a, a colonel by the name of William Post, received a fax from headquarters and said that there are 400 cases of jelly that have not accounted for in your records. Please locate them. He sent a private out to find the jelly, but he couldn't, so he wrote him back and said, we can't find the jelly. Well, the next memo came, next fax came and said, you need to find that jelly. The end of the month is coming. He ignored it, which led to a third fax said, find the jelly or else. So his response to them was, look, I can either find the 400 cases of jelly or I can kick Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. Which do you want me to do? Now, life comes down to that. Sometimes we find ourselves looking for cases of jelly in life when we would be better off exercising the spiritual disciplines that God has placed in our lives as Christians. 
I enjoyed reading about celebrity fitness trainer Kathy Kaler. I understand she has a no-nonsense approach to being physically fit. And she has a response she gives to those who say they're too busy to exercise. She says, there will always be someone busier than you on a treadmill right now. Let's paraphrase what she said. There will always be someone busier than you and me doing Bible study, prayer, ministry, service, and evangelism right now. The business and the busyness of life can become our enemies. So what are you doing after supper today? Well, let's bring this to a close and then celebrate the Lord's Supper. Everything I've mentioned so far is a negative. But there's one thing that began as a negative that ended as a positive that I want to leave us with today, and that's the experience that Peter had when he denied Christ. We see that in, uh, especially in verses 69 to 75. The climax is spiritual fall, and he was involved in all of the things that I've talked about today. But the climax of his spiritual fall is when he denied Christ three times. And verses 40, 74 and 75 say this, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a cock crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before, Cock crows, you will deny me three times. And I always stop and meditate at this moment. And he went out and wept bitterly. It was a sad moment in his life when he denied Christ three times. But what we find in his positive, you see up to that point, he was a spiritually cocky disciple. But after that moment of genuine brokenness, over his sin. And especially later in John 21, when Jesus restores him fully, it was then that Peter was ready to be the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. What I would say to you and me today is the best thing that could occur for us as a result of our taking the Lord's Supper together would be for us to encounter the broken body of Christ in the shed blood of Jesus such that our hearts are broken over our sin. And because of that, it can be the beginning of a bridge back home to the Father. What are we going to do after supper today? My prayer is that instead of allowing fear and pride and ignorance of key spiritual disciplines or unforgiveness or anger or bitterness or resentment or hatred or lust or you fill in the blank to dominate our lives, that we would come to a fresh brokenness over our sins so that we can walk out of here a different person. I invite you to join me at the table. 
It's supper time. In a moment, we're going to experience the Lord's Supper together. Now, I want to invite the deacons to move forward uh, to take their place. And while they do, I want to read the Apostle Paul's account of the Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I also received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. So let him eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. We're going to spend a few moments now in prayer getting ready for our celebration of the Lord's Supper. The altar is open for you to come and kneel and pray if you would like to do that, or you can simply pray there at your seat. All we're going to hear for a while is the piano playing, and then I will pray a prayer, a collective prayer closing. But let's use this time to ready ourselves to confess sin, to make sure that we are prepared to experience the Lord's Supper together in a manner worthy of the Lord. So bow your heads, come forward if you'd like. Let's spend this time in confession and prayer.